Hi, welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. I hope you are all enjoying your holiday season or that you enjoyed your holiday season in case we release this episode after uh, the holidays have ended. Uh, today, I have a very special guest, an old buddy of mine, actually, from grad school and from Chicago. Uh, John Schmidt is joining me. Uh, John served as a pr- is serving as program manager for the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Governors and Premiers Organization, uh, as the coordinator for the Governors and Premiers Regional Maritime Initiative, uh, John analyzes and develops maritime transportation policy in addition to implementing programs focused on green shipping, uh, trade development, and autonomous shipping. Uh, he was recently named a 40 under 40 and maritime professionals by the port of Antwerp, Bruges. Uh, John also holds a master's degree in public policy from the University of Chicago. We were classmates together. And a bachelor's degree in economics and international studies from Loyola University, Chicago. He is a Chicago man. Uh, He also studied at Sciences Po in in Provence, France, probably butchered that, and the University of International Business and Economics in Beijing, China. I did not know that, John. Yeah. John, it's it's good to have you. It's good to have you, man. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. I know we've been trying to get a date lined up. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, John, essentially you're working on the Great Lakes. This is a national security and foreign policy podcast. Why are you on this episode right now? Why do I have you here uh, talking about the Great Lakes? What does that have to do with national security and foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, I think from the international perspective, there's a lot of touch points there with the Great Lakes region. I think maybe before we dive into it, it's it's good to give a little bit of an overview of the organization I work with. So we're the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Governors and Premiers, and um, it's kind of all in the name, a pretty long one. Um, but we work on behalf of the chief executives from Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Ontario, Pennsylvania, Quebec, and Wisconsin, so the governors and premiers of the Great Lakes states and provinces, um, to grow the region's $6 trillion economy, protect the world's largest system of surface fresh water. And we have a variety of different programs within our organization, all geared towards policy and projects that grow that regional economy while protecting the Great Lakes at the same time. And, you know, I think in terms of a model for you know, international cross-border partnership, um, you know, ours works pretty well. There's 10 different chief executives. You've got one body of water that spans two nations. Um, it's being able to find points of cooperation um, is, is you know, not always easy, of course, but something that we've been able to do over decades and I think is a good model for other kind of cross-border partnerships as well. But in terms of how the Great Lakes inter- intersects with national security, I think, you know, you don't have to think much farther than than water and water security, which is big all over the world. Yeah. So, I mean, when we're talking about water security, uh, what does that mean, I guess, in the context of your job, in the context of the Great Lakes and in the context of that national security? We've done, I think, maybe two episodes now on water security. But what's your sort of take on that? I mean, we're, the Great Lakes, I think, are some of the world's largest freshwater bodies of water. Yeah. It, world's largest body of surface freshwater. Um, it's uh, quite a bit of water we got over here in our backyard and I'm based out of Chicago. So I'm lucky enough to, to get to be around it every day. Um, it's a zoom background of Chicago, like right now guys. (laughs) Yeah. But I I mean, as you think about water security globally, you know, there's, what is it? 2.2 billion people who lack access to safely managed drinking water services. There's 2 billion people that live in countries that have high water stress. 
you know, 80% of wastewater flows back into the ecosystem without being treated or reused. Um, you know, two thirds of the world's transboundary waterways, like rivers, don't have any kind of cooperative management framework. It, this is a, a global issue. Thankfully, you know, not all of those are, are issues for our region, but it's something that you always have to keep in mind as we're thinking through water policy, um, different agreements, arrangements between the states and provinces. You know, we don't want to get to that point where were severely threatened on all sides um, by you know improper, inadequate access to water. So making sure we can safeguard that is certainly a national security issue for not only just the region here um, with the states and provinces, but the larger, you know, both nations and and you know, kind of globally as well. So when you're approaching the Great Lakes themselves as that sort of entity, I mean, what are the key challenges in water security? that you observe in the Great Lakes? Because I've talked about water security issues in Middle East, in uh, Africa, in Southeast Asia, but I'm trying to sort of get my head wrapped around the Great Lakes. Yeah, um, well, it's it's funny. I was listening back to an older episode that you did. I forget the name of the guest, but um, she was talking about water security globally and um, kind of water and national security. And you used an example yourself. You know, California... You know, I know that you're from Southern California. We, we need water, Great Lakes. You know, they got a lot of water and you kind of trailed off. Um, and it, it was funny you mentioned that specifically because this is uh, an issue, you know, we may face in the future, but also one that we've done a particularly good job in safeguarding in the past. Um, we have something called the Great Lakes Compact, which just had its 15 year anniversary. And it was really transformational for for water management in our region with kind of national implications um, you know, here in the region, you know, water is key to to everything from manufacturing goods, you know, having a clean drinking water supply, and with climate change that's becoming you know even more precious here and and around the world. But um, we've been really proactive in putting in accords and agreements, this Great Lakes Compact, to protect that twenty percent of the world's surface freshwater that exists here in the region, which is the biggest single surface freshwater you know ecosystem in the world. Um, you know, this compact was was passed by all of the states and provinces, um, was signed by President Bush 15 years ago now, and it, it kind of set the example globally for how you manage water. You know, we have our Great Lakes watershed, our Great Lakes Basin. It's, you know, that water can't be taken out of the Great Lakes Basin and used for uses other than those from the communities within that basin unless you get special agreements from all of the states and provinces. And while that might sound a little bit uh, convoluted in, in my explanation there, it really is an effort to safeguard this system of freshwater that is so critical to the region um, so that it's managed appropriately. Because, you know, imagine one state wants to just start draining the lakes and the other state is facing water insecurity, or even if they're not facing water insecurity, they it's it's a single system that's managed by all these different entities across multiple countries, um, really important to to keep that safe. And in terms of this compact, you know, people ask us all the time, how is it that across two countries, eight states, two provinces, we were able to create these water management agreements? And, you know, we've talked to groups in South America, Southeast Asia, Europe, about how we built this. Um, and, you know, we've really created a model of, of global interest there. Again, in the podcast, you were 
you put out a couple of weeks ago, you're talking about water and security issues around the world. There's all sorts of, of transboundary you know, bodies of water and how those are managed effectively and equitably going forward is, I think, going to be the source of a lot of controversy and going to require a lot of partnerships like the ones that we've built. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I think about the Great Lakes, I think about, you know, I think the first question when you sort of offered that explanation was, you know, who actually controls it? Now you said, you know, you have 10 sort of chief executives who you're, you know, engaging with. But, you know, in my mind, you know, Canada feels like a, a wetter place in the United States, right? Like you mentioned, right, California. California is so arid. Southern California, it feels like they're always running out of water. Uh, it, it feels like if, I mean, I don't know, right, like how this all works. So it feels like if I'm the United States, I'd want to get all that Great Lake water and send it off to California. But then it seems like the U.S. would then be using way more water from the Great Lakes uh, than Canada would, right? So, I mean, how does that control work? Where does that water go? Like, does Great Lakes water go to California, or is that just the Colorado River and other sorts of uh, reservoirs in that sort of Western area? Uh, who uses the Great Lake water? How does control actually occur? And I mean, I'm just trying to understand how you ensure that one country is not using way more than the other, just because in my view, it feels like the US is way more strapped for water. Uh, than Canada is. Yeah, you know, it's a big country, although I suppose Canada is too. It, in terms of management, it's um, now that this compact has been signed and ratified, and like I said, President Bush signed it 15 years ago, it is this agreement between the states and provinces on how they will, you know, manage the water going forward, which is not sending it outside of the Great Lakes Basin, except in cases of, you know, humanitarian disaster sometimes. Um, Who's in the basin? Is it all the states that sort of border the lakes or is it? Yep. It's that? those eight states, two provinces. I've got actually a really nice map behind me that shows the um, Great Lakes Basin. And one thing that's interesting is the um, just the the way that it looks. If I can turn off my background here, you can see it. But the... Great Lakes Basin extends, you know, really far out from the lakes in some places and other places. It's just, you know, right there on the border of the lake, you know, around Chicago, especially. So it's, um, yeah, if you can see it on the map there, but spans those eight states, two provinces and some more than others. But, you know, everybody has a vested interest, which, you know, frankly, also exists across party lines. It's another question that we get all the time is, you know, how do you work, not just eight states, two provinces, all these governors and premiers, you know, how do you work across party lines? How do you get agreement on on things? And we, of course, take our direction from the governors and, and premiers themselves. But, you know, when you're thinking about Great Lakes environmental issues, we've really found uh, it's, it's really refreshing to a lot of people. It's it's kind of this nonpartisan zone. Um, you know, folks grew up hunting and fishing and recreating on the lakes. They're Great Lakes people through and through all of them. So everybody has this vested interest in, you know, keeping this natural resource that really defines our region economically and socially and, you know, in all these different dimensions, keeping that protected to the greatest extent possible. Yeah. So, I mean, again, though, I mean, like, where does the water, where is the water allowed to go? Like, is it allowed to go to California or like, no? It cannot go to California. 
does not go to California, uh, will not go to California under the Great Lakes Compact. Um, there was a article that was put out. This is testing my knowledge because it's before my time. But there was an article that was put out, I don't know, more than 15 years ago because it was before the compact. But it was talking about this company that got uh, contracts that would allow them to export Great Lakes water to China. And that was one of the things that hit the headlines. Great Lakes water, like, you know, to go to China. And I think not that that started the conversation of, oh, you know, we need to figure out a better way to manage this. It um, it brought it to the the public sphere and, um, you know, a lot of environmental organizations, activists and, you know, frankly, normal people found that interesting. And, oh, yeah, for sure. Because I mean, I mean, it's it's good that the United States and Canada are friendly countries. They're both democracies. I mean, they're not going to be fighting over this source. But if you had an unfriend, like if the United States suddenly turned unfriendly, for example, and I'm sitting in Canada and I want access to Great Lakes, I feel like if I was dictator of America, I just want to like export a lot of Great Lakes water to to California to like sort of solve that problem. And I mean, you sort of see, right, like how these water security issues can actually lead to conflict if you did not have countries like the United States and Canada, you know, having this agreement uh, you know, between themselves, you know, mediated by organizations such as yours, uh, you know, that actually ensure that, you know, fair usage of the water is possible. But I mean, are there not like contentions, I guess, around that, right? Like, I feel like there would be some contentions or maybe I'm just not understanding it. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly issues that arise from time to time, but I think the beauty of the structure that we set up is such that you know, these things can be managed in an equitable kind of fair and understanding way between all parties. And, you know, as you talk about water security around the country more broadly, it's how I see it. A lot of these places where there are water tension and water crisis, you know, of course, that stems from a lack of abundance of of fresh water like we have here in the lakes. But, you know, water needs to have a superstructure of management like we've built here it's you know folks need to think about this from not just your own siloed county or city or even state this is these are regional issues and and sometimes national issues too and if you don't have a a good equitable system set up there are going to be winners and losers and people aren't going to feel great about that and it's going to you know deplete this resource that is of course renewable but not always on the the time scale you'd think when you're a little kid and you see the you know, circle of life for water. Um, it, it can take some time to replenish aquifers and and you want to be really smart about how you're, you're implementing that. I think that's actually a good point though, uh, in terms of technology, you know, tech, and, and I know you talk about this in, in other episodes too, but, you know, technology is advancing every day and in, in every dimension, you know, watering crops with significant, we're watering crops today with significantly less water in some places than, than we used to, because you can target those pipes and the hoses and the drip irrigation, all sorts of things to help conserve. So I think not that water scarcity will become less of a problem only because of technology, but through better management, you know, through cooperative agreements, recognizing the issues and challenges that everybody faces. And, and with this technology, I think we're, we're in as good a place as, as we've ever been and will continue to advance. But of course, that technology isn't just, I mean, it's not just about water usage, right? One of the other areas that I work on, so I manage our, our maritime portfolio of work specifically. And one of the big focuses there is smart shipping and, and smart ships. And 
We've seen a tremendous amount of technology around, you know, how ships move, uh, how many crew they need, you know, different safety pieces, you know, autonomy, et cetera, um, come about in the last couple of years. And, and we co-founded an organization called the Smart Ships Coalition to kind of be the the unifier of all those different pieces of technology and thinkers and organizations, companies, governments, et cetera, that are, are working on those smart shipping issues, bringing them under one roof um, to, to hash out the challenges, of course, um, safety, et cetera, cost, but also the opportunities, you know, safer conditions for folks in search and rescue, um, hazardous spill cleanup, um, helping to deal with the, the, you know, employment shortage that's that's affecting the maritime industry, among many others. There's a lot of opportunities there for for technology. No, for sure. And like, you know, putting my DOD contractor hat on uh, contracting for the Navy. I mean, you sort of see like a lot of dual use technology uh, opportunities with, I mean, a lot of those uh, topics you just mentioned having to do with the Great Lakes, uh, especially, you know, when it comes to things like search and rescue, you know, which obviously the Navy would have certainly an interest in uh, autonomous shipping uh, and so on. Uh, but I mean, John, you know, before we dive into that further, I feel like when I catch up with you, you're always sort of jet setting uh, somewhere uh, and not just limited to the 10 sort of states and provinces, you know, that you're interacting with. Uh, why do people around the world care about this? Why do people in Europe care about this? Why do people in Asia care about this? Why do they care about the work that you're doing with the Great Lakes? I think, first of all, it's just a question of partnership. We, you know, I am not a specialist. I am a generalist, as is basically everybody I work with. We're a very small organization, six employees. As of yesterday, we had a new hire. Um, and, you know, we all work across these different topics and fields, although we have our primary focus, of course. But, you know, part of being really small, lean, and, and you know, frankly, getting a lot of work done is knowing what you don't know and being willing to talk to others. So we have a number of international partnerships that we've cultivated over years and years that have been tremendously helpful to all areas of our work. And, you know, when we're going abroad, we're going to meet with folks like the, you know, Port of Antwerp Bruges, who has been working with us on, you know, helping to figure out how to increase trade between Western Europe and the Great Lakes via the water. Um, folks like the Central Committee for the Navigation of the Rhine, which is based out of Strasbourg. Um, it's the, the oldest water management agreement on the planet or in Europe. I think it's on the planet. Um, you know, others, the Norwegian Forum for Autonomous Ships, which was the catalyst for the, the smart shipping, uh, smart ships coalition that we built a couple of years ago. You know, it's, it's, constantly going back and seeing what's new abroad, seeing what lessons they've learned there and trying to figure out if, you know, some of those can be right-sized for our region. Um, you know, our maritime system here is the backbone of the regional economy. It's, uh, you know, it, it's it's a very traditional industry too. It's It's been around for a long time. And um, because, you know, ports on the Great Lakes, of which there are many, uh, you know, don't service those massive container ships you see, like the one stuck in the Panama Canal. Um, we we move a different type of good, and our ports are just kind of categorically different than these ones in Europe. But you know, as they've had ideas mature there that have worked, there's a lot of opportunity for you know implementing some of those same lessons learned and many different ones here in the lakes. So, um, international partnership has been really key 
seeing how management works elsewhere, um, seeing how technologies have developed elsewhere, and of course, sharing back with them what's been working here. Um, what are ways that that you know we can have a stronger partnership? What are ways that we can help you out? Those are all kind of part and parcel of of those meetings. But it is true we we do a good amount of international travel and especially travel within the region. Um, for me, as as somebody who who enjoys that part of his job, particularly. It's it's nice working in the maritime field because pretty much everywhere that you travel, you're going to be right there on the side of the the lake or yeah. side of the ocean. So, um, it could certainly be worse. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, I guess like you know, since you started this work, I mean, like what what's sort of surprised you the most about this maritime industry, this maritime policy on sort of like an international level, right? Like what sort of expectations, what sort of assumptions? Uh, have you been most surprised by? I mean, so many. It's this is an incredibly rewarding job. I I enjoy it tremendously. Feels like every day is something new. It, you know, every project we're working on would make a great article in the Economist that I would for sure read if I saw it on an airport newsstand. Um, but what surprised me the most is, of course, you know, you learn about the International Maritime Organization, and you and I, I think we were in the same class for hydropolitics yeah we were during covid so the the mind's a little fuzzy but you know you learn about international maritime organization and you know you, you learn it in class you take your notes and you you take the exam but as i've gotten to learn more about it you know and it sounds a little dumb for somebody working in maritime but i i didn't realize how much of a superstructure exists internationally to to govern shipping and and the power that it has you know if if they set greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets, um, you know, those are, are for the most part going to be adhered to. They have a, a tremendous ability to create policy and and kind of unite what is an incredibly global industry. There's a website, it's called Boat Nerd, I think. It's bookmarked on my computer, but you can go on there. I'm sure you've seen the app Flight Radar. Flight Radar 24, you know, you can go on your phone and see if you see a plane flying over overhead, you can see it on the map and see it. Oh, it's going from Doha to Los Angeles or whatever. Um, same kind of thing exists for, for maritime, where if you see a ship um, or even if you just scroll out on the map, you can see the number of container ships moving around the world at any given time. And it's absolutely staggering. You know, the vast majority of the goods in your room, my room that we touch every day are are moved by ships. And it's something that I think the public doesn't always realize is, is so omnipresent. And it took things like the supply chain difficulties, what, a couple of years ago that are mostly sorted out now, you know, folks not getting their shipments on time, car prices being high, et cetera, et cetera, to, to demonstrate to people how important this industry is. And, you know, thinking about from the emissions standpoint, uh, global shipping is is only about two percent of global emissions, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be decarbonized and you know decarbonized quickly. It's incredibly difficult to decarbonize, but um, it's it's certainly worth doing. And and I mean, there's so much maritime trade all around the world. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I mean, so I mean, my next question may be a little bit out of like the maybe out there but if i'm an enemy of the state an enemy of america like uh and i want to sort of you know screw up the great lakes right like what 
would be sort of those targets, right? Like how are national security agencies, perhaps, how have they engaged with organizations like yours uh, or on this sort of Great Lakes, uh, this whole Great Lakes sort of policy area? How are they thinking about this via like a security threat? Like what could go wrong with the Great Lakes to screw up life in America or in Canada, I guess? That's that's what I'm trying to sort of get out. Sure. Well, I think I don't think my boss would be very happy with me if I listed out the the potential security threats of the Great Lakes. But I mean, <laughs> I think you can to take a, a help yeah to take another angle at your question. You know, the Great Lakes represents a number of domains of security at the same time. There's of course economic security. Great Lakes is the backbone for trade, transportation of good and raw goods and raw materials. You know, all over the region and internationally. You know, freshwater water security. We talked about some of them. Um, eighty-four percent of North America's surface freshwater, incredibly important. Environmental security. You know, environmental degradation, pollution, invasive species. These are all a huge threat and things that that we work to to improve. You know, on a on a daily basis. Military infrastructure. You know, I grew up in a military family. My dad is a retired army colonel. And when we were growing up, um, I'm originally from Kansas, but my uh, two half brothers lived up in the the UP of Michigan. And so when we drive up, one talk about culture shock. But when we're driving up to the UP, we'd stay at you know military bases all along the lakes. Uh, historically, it's been really important. And fun fact, I think your listeners are probably like um, George H W Bush actually trained on a vessel called the USS Sable, which was one of two. They're formerly kind of passenger ships, um, but they were converted to be aircraft carriers to be used in freshwater training on the lakes. So these are the only two Great Lakes aircraft carriers that are that have ever existed. And, you know, the the U.S. government saw this as a safe place to train. Um, you know, it's it's inland. Um, and and, you know, there, there's been that military component for some time. Um yeah, we we talked about the water security. So it, it's it's all of these different domains that that need to be you know vigilantly safeguarded. Um, also, so you may have heard about the the Sioux Locks. I think maybe you told me you visited them a couple of years ago. But it's Locks. the yeah. So it's a if you know what a lock is, basically a a ship, a boat, you know, a paddleboard, whatever goes into something called a lock. You you go into it, the gate closes behind you, oh, okay. um, and you're in this little bit of water that's between two gates. And so you can raise or lower the amount of water within the lock, and then you open the gate on the other side, and that's how you can traverse elevation gains in water. I think if you've ever taken a boat tour in Chicago, you sort of go through that when you're sort of uh, right after you've got on the boat and it's sort of getting out to the main lake. You know, you're I think you're stuck between those two. Yeah, no locks right there on Chicago River actually, but but there are tons in the region. Anyway, so there's this piece of infrastructure called the Sioux Locks. Um, I don't recall when it was originally constructed, I think maybe the 60s. Um, it's this old aging piece of infrastructure. And, you know, there was a recognition that that you know, we, we need a new lock for a number of reasons. So um, this new lock, a twin of the first one, was authorized in the 1980s. And I should say this lock sits between um, Lake Superior and Lake Huron on either side is Sault Ste. Marie, Canada and Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. So new lock authorized in 1980s. Um, 
And the Army Corps has a process to do a cost-benefit analysis to see if this is a project that they're going to undertake. Project never really reached the required threshold to pass the Army Corps' internal measure for how it prioritizes projects. Of course, there's a ton of work that needs to be done, but you can't do everything, and you can't do everything at once. So it was considered a low priority, not even on the list. Um, you know, folks in the region were trying to figure out how to get this project done because there's no real alternative um, to move goods if the locks were shut down. So, you know, Army Corps does their reevaluation, still doesn't meet the minimum level. So a group of regional leaders, um, including the governor's organization and, and many, many others, you know, put their heads together to say, you know, we need to think about this a little bit differently. But trying to figure this out right now, the way we're doing it isn't getting it done. And so the idea came up, you know, what if it's not a mechanical failure that takes the lockdown just because it's old? Um, you know, what if there were some kind of security related event that would lead to a closure? So Department of Homeland Security um, talked with folks all around the region. Um, and this was a, a fresh way to look at it. Their working assumptions totally different from that of the Army Corps. You know, if this thing goes down for six months, the steel industry shuts down, the car industry shuts down, all other goods like white goods that use steel are shut down. They did a 50 state analysis to show what would happen across the country if it did shut down. And because then it wasn't just a Michigan impact, but a regional and national one for you know states that are dependent on steel and coal and grain and all the other stuff that's moved around, um, you know, it, it kind of elevated the issue. You could, you know... Somebody from, you know, a member of Congress from Alabama could say, you know, you never thought the the Sulox would be an important part of your regional economy, but here it is. We've got car manufacturing here, et cetera, et cetera. So that Homeland Security report that that was thinking about other, you know, potential security threats that could bring the locks down had a, a huge impact on getting this multi-billion dollar piece of infrastructure started. It's going to be done in, in 2030. And, you know, just the recognition that this is a globally important piece of infrastructure that DHS report was was really key to get movement in Congress and now concrete is being laid and the lock is being built. So I, I think in terms of of you know critical infrastructure, the the region has a lot of it. And especially with it being, you know, the larger Great Lakes region being such a hub for manufacturing and steel production, et cetera, both historically and today. Um, protecting those things is of some, you know, something of utmost interest for for all parties involved, and you know, something I I think the federal government pays particular attention to. No, and I I really appreciate that explanation because you really talked about how we went from these Sioux locks to like how you know if you don't have that, the steel industry across the region may be impacted, which affects the entire country. Uh, I mean, certainly, I mean, a lot of the industries affected. Uh, by that issue, you know, would certainly be in the defense uh, industry, for example, for all the defense folks who are listening. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that's actually fascinating, like how this sort of domino effect occurs just because of this, you know, this piece of critical infrastructure that like 99.9% .9 of people have never heard of. Yeah, I recommend anybody who's up in Sault Ste. Marie, it's a bit of a hike. Um, nice place goes and and looks at the the Sulox. They actually have a, a viewing platform there. So you can see the you know big ships roll in and get elevated or, or lowered in the locks and and go out on their way either to or from Duluth or you know elsewhere on, on Lake Superior. Uh Duluth is is actually the largest port on the Great Lakes. 
uh, not counting the ones in the St. Lawrence, like Quebec and, and Montreal and Toronto and Hamilton, but um, it historically has played a really big role in, in the economy of the region and the country, you know, all of the taconite, like the iron ore is mined up there in Northern Michigan, you know, um, Wisconsin, Minnesota, grain also of course um put on these ships and sent out around the region and all over the world so if you don't have a way to get out of lake superior that's going to have huge knock-on effects for for you know thailand let alone michigan no yeah for sure and i mean i i appreciate this conversation because you know when you think of water security the first things that may come to mind are drinking water and agriculture but we're talking about you know really sort of uh, down uh, chain effects uh, that may occur impacting just so many different areas so many different states so many different countries uh, for example uh, but i sort of want to move the conversation now uh, we mentioned this a little bit earlier but on shipping uh, green shipping smart yeah. shipping what do those terms really mean to you uh, and why are they important in the context of your work? Yeah. So I think everything really goes back to that dual goal that we have as an organization of environmental protection and economic development. Um, and as the person who, who manages our maritime portfolio, I really think of that work split up in three categories. Uh, the first one is green shipping. Right now, most of our work is centered around biofuels and electrification for ports and for ships. Um, we have a new U.S. Maritime Administration-funded study we're working on with um, folks at the International Council on Clean Transportation and the American Bureau of Shipping that's looking at the future suite of alternative fuels that could be a good fit for regional shipping. Um, second kind of pillar there is, is smart shipping, as we discussed a little bit, things like autonomous ships, better traffic management, safer search and rescue, hazardous spill cleanup, surveying, et cetera. Folks call it the three Ds, dull, dirty, dangerous. It's kind of what smart shipping uh, is is best applied in. But I mean, it's it's not just safety too. It's it's environmental impact. If you have a, a you know Google Maps for ships doesn't exist. You don't put in okay, I'm going to Duluth, and then you know it, there's technology that exists, of course. But here on the lakes, um, there's not really a, a vessel traffic management system. And if you're able to optimize your your route planning, et cetera, you're going to see real emissions gains um, in aggregate. So last pillar there is Western European trade. Uh, you know, shipping is the greenest way to move cargo from point A to point B or people and getting cargo on the water is is a net win. Um, our partners in Europe are, are, you know, key for that smart and green shipping work. I was just out in um La Havre, which is the it's like Port of Paris, La Havre, up on the northern coast of France a couple of weeks ago. Same with Antwerp. And, you know, those conversations revolved around the green shipping work in ways that that we can move forward kind of in our region internationally. We have that MOU with the Norwegian Forum for Autonomous Ships. Um, so all that to say the the kind of cross-border partnership, um, you know, Western European, not just trade, but relationship development is it touches all these other parts of our work. So, you know, green shipping is really important. And if you look at a map, we do an emissions inventory every year of, you know, what are the the net emissions, where are the hotspots, et cetera. And, you know, in smaller waterways, smaller channels, you see the, the impact that those emissions can have um, because they're concentrated. You know, it's not just a ship in the middle of Lake Superior. It's a all the ships that were in the middle of Lake Superior now passing this one point in the St. Lawrence River, which is what connects the, the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, in 
I guess, health security too. Maybe another uh, dimension of this. It's finding a, a way to keep everybody safe, happy, and have this be the best place to live and work in, in the country. Yeah, so health security, climate security, homeland yeah. security, economic security. We touched on all these yeah, random... Cybersecurity, thinking about the, the smart shipping work that we do, making sure that that is as secure as is humanly possible um, is, of course, paramount, right? You're you got shipping companies that are that are sharing data. You saw in the the kind of global sphere, not on the Great Lakes, but it was Maersk and CMA CGM, two large shipping companies um, that were hacked, had a, a data breach, and were ransomed by malicious actors. This was a year or two years ago, and and you know when you're putting your data out there, you want to be really sure that that's going to be as secure as possible. So as we think about smart shipping, it's not just, oh, what's the cool new technology that is a net benefit for everybody. It's also, you know, how do we balance that with with risks and how do we build systems that are as safe as humanly possible? And, you know, that's, of course, a challenge as it is in in every industry. But here in the Great Lakes, especially <clears throat> with the Smart Ships Coalition and, and also some really visionary and forward-looking ports, um, those challenges are being addressed. As an example, Port of Monroe, which is you know 40 or so minutes south of Detroit, um, and their port director, Paul Lamar, they have a, a partnership right now with an organization called New Lab, which is originally out of Brooklyn, but they're using the port as kind of a, a collaborative test bed for smart shipping technologies in practice, you know, real out in the water. They have a, a Mythos AI who's works with them. Um, they have an autonomous ship that they brought up to one of our recent meetings up in Traverse City, and you can see this thing out there just cruising around. It's it's amazing. You know, you point another boat at it as if it would crash, and it, it's moving and just doing its thing. So, it's it, how do you make sure that these ships and and different vessels are secure that somebody can't take them over while they're out there? It's it's all these you know big minds and PhD throwing the PhDs at it. No, no, for sure. And I mean, I think we're going to start getting to a point maybe in the next few decades where you're going to start seeing autonomous cargo ships, for example. I know Europe has already, I think, produced, I think, maybe a couple of those autonomous cargo ships that are totally uncrewed. We're not talking about, you know, little drones and all of this stuff, but like massive ships. And, uh, you know, you, you do really outline some of those huge cybersecurity challenges. Uh, and I mean, you know, as we sort of get to the close of this interview, I mean, what are some of those unexpected challenges? We talked about, again, climate security, health security, economic security, homeland security. But I mean, like, what are some of those other unexpected challenges that you sort of find uh, associated with the Great Lakes? You know, key issues that may be underappreciated right now by policymakers and so on, but that perhaps do need to be appreciated, uh, you know, in the near future, at least. I don't know if I'd frame it as unexpected challenges. There's certainly a lot of areas where you know support and vigilance is going to be needed. But I think the most important is just making sure that the partnerships that it, like you build good, strong partnerships in order to avoid those unexpected challenges, right? And I think we're particularly lucky in our region that we have built those. We have superstructures. Um, you know, we have organizations working on behalf of these these chief executives and others and you know, the ports and the shippers, et cetera. So when you have a, a set of good relationships and a strong partnership, the rest kind of flows from that. But 
Of course, there are are ongoing challenges, things like aquatic aquatic invasive species. I'm sure all of your listeners have heard of the the Asian carp. It's been rebranded here in Illinois as as Kopi. Um, but you know that poses a real threat to the lakes if if they were to to enter you know past where they are in the Chicago River right now. There's a another U.S. Army Corps of Engineers project, a tremendous amount of money being put into Brandon Road, which is a you know uh, basically a place where they're trying to stop these fish from entering the rest of the ecosystem. So that's a huge existential threat. So they're in the river. Yeah. They're in the Chicago right now, and we're trying to stop them from getting to the lake. Yes. So there's all sorts of barriers set up. They're, you know, sonic barriers. Um, I don't know if they're playing music they don't like or what it is, but, you know, some kind of high frequency thing that's, that's stopping them from getting in. Um, there are electrical traps that it's kind of gruesome, but uh, electrocutes them. There's all these barriers in place, and so far they haven't made it into the lakes, but it's not just these physical barriers. It's it's legal ones, too. You know, you you aren't allowed, obviously, to farm these fish or take live ones home in case something happens and it gets in the lakes. Uh, how it was originally introduced, from my understanding, is the the prevailing theory, at least, is that it was, um, you know, floodwaters that took these fish out of either private ponds and stuff, or there might've been some kind of aquaculture thing done by the Mississippi river, brought them into the Mississippi river. They're these massive fish. Um, they eat everything in sight and deplete the native fish populations, making it more difficult for fishermen and, and others who recreate, uh, to do what they need to do to, to live and, and make a living. So it's, there's all these superstructures in place, but aquatic invasive species, definitely a big one. You've seen, if you've spent any time in the Great Lakes region, the the zebra mussels, which is an invasive species that is is already here, um, you know, sucks a lot of the nutrients out of the water, makes it more difficult for other species to exist. So I think in, aquatic invasive species are going to be big and not just here in the region, but all around the world, as you think of climate change and how that affects habitats, where that's going to send, you know, existing species as they try to adapt, um, being vigilant you know, legally and physically uh, are going to be really critical there. But um, as with anything else, you know, human ingenuity is is pretty amazing. And our ability to fight with each other, of course, but also to to work with each other, our greatest strength comes through this cooperation. And um, I'm lucky to be working with an organization that has really made this cooperation their entire model, you know, working with a fantastic set of of governors and premiers and to try to get these initiatives, you know, forward thinking, important initiatives through, um, has, it's a real privilege. No, and it's so interesting, right? Like, again, sort of devoid of party. A lot of this is apolitical, regardless of if you're a Republican or a Democratic or liberal or conservative in Canada. Uh, and I mean, I'm sure getting 10 different states, 10 different states and provinces uh, to agree you know, on a set of policies, on a set of approaches uh, for a very vital resource that impacts all those types of security, you know, that we've just talked about over the last like 50 minutes uh, could be so hard, especially when that leadership is changing, you know, all the time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we had our a celebration last week or two weeks ago in Ann Arbor talking about the 15th anniversary of the Great Lakes Compact, brought all these folks who worked on it back in the day together. It was like a high school. Re I didn't work on it 15 years ago, much before my time, but um, it was great to see all them connecting and reliving these old great memories. And um, 
I think it was a hundred days or so they spent in person in meetings together, representatives from all these states and provinces in a room. Um, and, and it just shows you how much work goes into big pieces of legislation. I know we still have the original document that, that president Bush signed. It's a big moment, not just for the region and, and for the water, but, you know, for, for us too, it's something that you can look back. I know my, our executive director, uh, Dave Nafsker and our deputy director, Pete Johnson, look back at that as, you know, the highlight of their career. So hoping that as I'm here longer, we can have more kind of regionally impactful initiatives that, that we can look back and be proud about. No, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, John, you know, for joining me. Uh, here today. It's always good to have an old friend uh, on the podcast. And I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation because, you know, I sort of wanted to walk into this interview quite sort of, you know, blank spaced on what I know about, you know, your work. Uh, you tell me about it sometimes, but I still don't understand yeah. it some other time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think I understand it quite well now. Uh, and I mean, just so fascinating to see how the Great Lakes, how your work on the Great Lakes just impacts all of these different types, all of these different facets uh, of national security. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, we're in D.C. with some regularity. I'll be back in March for Great Lakes Day up on up on the hill. So I'll have to stop by and and we can go grab some lunch. Yeah, definitely. Or a beer. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you said it. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, thanks, John. Thanks so much.